The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And when we look to the table this morning, I pray that we would consider his sacrifice. I pray that we would consider Jesus Christ the lion and the lamb. The lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. The lion of the tribe of Judah. May we live in light of his sacrifice. We thank you and it's in his name we pray. Amen. I'd invite the four and five-year-olds at this time to be dismissed. For the rest of us, we are going to be in Mark chapter 10 today, Mark chapter 10, and beginning in verse 32. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. Robert Frost has a very famous poem that I no doubt have imagined you have heard, and the last stanza of that poem reads as follows. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now, as we consider coming to the table this morning, as we consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I would invite to you and I would suggest to you this morning that Christ did not just take the road less traveled. Jesus Christ took the road that had never been traveled. And that is what we will consider this morning. In your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, let's read our text. Mark 10, verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we, were go- we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. The context of our passage this morning In Mark chapter 10, if we look at Mark 9, we have just gone through Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up the mountain. He was transfigured before them. They saw his glory. They had no idea what to do with it. The immediate context after Mark 10 is the triumphal entry. So just to give you a little bit of an idea of of where we find ourselves in Mark 10, as they are going up to Jerusalem, they are about to go up to the city as they would customarily do to celebrate Passover. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, as in all of the synoptic Gospels, Jesus predicts his death not once, not twice, but three times. 
And actually, in the Gospel of Mark, in the first two times, we see Jesus predicting his death in both Mark 8 and Mark 9, where he is in some way holding back some of the details to the disciples. He's not giving them everything. He's giving them details that he is going to die, but he keeps it somewhat vague. And as we see, it's, the disciples can't really handle this. And in Mark 10, as we just read, he gets a lot more descriptive about how it is going to play out. He is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked, scourged, spit upon, killed. And then three days later, he's going to rise again. And yet what's interesting to note here is the response of the disciples. They have absolutely no idea what to say. Now if we move over briefly to Matthew 16, we probably see the most famous example of this, and it's Jesus and Peter. It's the first time that Jesus predicts that he is going to go and die, but it comes right after probably one of the highest points in Peter's life. In Matthew 16... Jesus asks his disciples, says, who do you say that I am? Or who do, sorry, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond by saying, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Christ looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? And in one of Peter's great moments, one of the high points of his life, he recognizes Jesus as the Christ the Son of the living God. This is an amazing moment for Peter. And actually, if you continue to read in that account in Matthew 16, it gets better for Peter. Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He then goes on to tell him that he will give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's an amazing moment for Peter. It's an amazing moment for the disciples. But what does Peter do? Peter responds by pulling Jesus aside and rebuking him. He says, Jesus, we will never let you be put to death. And Jesus responds with a stinging rebuke to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You see, here at play is God's plan for the salvation of his people in redemptive history compared to man's understanding of how things are going to work out. And what we need to understand is those those two things, there could not be a greater chasm between those two things, between God's plan and man's understanding of what is going to happen. I submit to you this morning that there's an immediate application there for us as well. When we go through times in our life where there is intense bouts of suffering and struggle, and it's, God, why are you doing this? I cannot understand this. May we look to the disciples. May we look to Scripture and see time and time and time and time again, God working, man not understanding, but it working out for man's good. That's the promise of Romans 8. Man's plans are often far different than the plans of God. Before, in our context in Mark chapter 10, we have the story of the rich young ruler, right? It comes just before our text that we read this morning. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, 
All of these things I have done, what should I go and do? He says, well, go sell everything. Give to the poor and come and follow me. The rich young ruler goes away sad because he was a man of great wealth. And then Peter looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, we've sold everything. How is it going to work out for us in the kingdom? Right? And certainly there was maybe a little bit of spiritual emphasis or eternal emphasis in Peter's question. But I also tend to think that there was probably a lot of selfish motivation in what Peter was going to say as well. That happens before our text. Then we have our text in John, or sorry, Mark 10, 32-34. Jesus going for his disciples, telling them what is going to happen. And then immediately after, it's not, there, there's not even a verse in between. In verse 35, it says this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in glory. can't imagine what was going through Jesus' mind at this time. It's like, guys, listen to what I'm trying to tell you. You're thinking of yourself. You have no idea what you are asking for. You cannot sit on my right hand and my left hand. Certainly you are going to be there with me, but you do not know what you are asking for. Let's take your eyes off of what you would like to happen, and let's put our eyes squarely on what the plan of God the Father is. That we are going to go up to Jerusalem. That the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He is going to be tortured. He is going to suffer the most intense brutality that anyone had ever suffered. He is going to be rejected by the Father. He's going to be crucified. And then three days later, he's going to rise again. The disciples do not have a category for this. They cannot understand why Jesus keeps, keeps on predicting his death. They had no ability to look further than the idea that Jesus was going to liberate them, not from sin and from death, but from the Romans. Right? I think we often forget. It's easy from our perspective to, to look back and say, why didn't you just have like a Christian understanding of what was about to happen? Where was your theology? Why didn't you get this? But we forget to understand that that didn't exist at that time. That these disciples were Jews that had been born and raised in Judaism. And so their teachers again and again and again had instructed them that this is what it's going to look like when Messiah comes. He is going to be a powerful conqueror. He is going to free us from the Romans. It is going to be a political revolution that takes place and the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. They certainly understood that as followers of Christ, they were contrary to the established religious elite. We can say that. But they still expected Christ to rid them of the Romans and set up his kingdom in the here and the now. Further evidence of this is even after the resurrection, we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and I think we have that up on the screen, they're asking whether or not Jesus would now restore the kingdom to Israel. It says, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, so this is after Jesus has been crucified, died, risen again, right? He has come back into their presence, and they're asking him, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right, they're still in a place where they're trying to piece together what is taking place. 
right? Christ knows exactly what the plan is. But the disciples, as much as they want to, they have difficulty in putting this all together. Jesus Christ knew that he had come to earth, which we're going to celebrate at Christmas time, for a very specific reason. Right? As Christians, we understand that at, at Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel. Right? God came and he dwelled with us. What a beautiful thing that is, but we can't stop there. We must also realize that for Christians, Christmas is directly tied to Easter. Because when Jesus came and he put on flesh, he did so for a very specific purpose, and that was to die. He came to die. The promise of this goes all the way back to the beginning, and it is promised all throughout the Old Testament. It's constantly pointing forward to how Christ would come and he would fulfill all of the Old Testament and he would die for the sins of humanity. Bear with me for a few moments as we walk back through ever so briefly these promises. In Genesis 1, we see Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The Bible says they were naked and they were not ashamed. It was, it was beautiful. They were in the garden. They had perfect fellowship with God. There was peace there was harmony. Do you not long for that today? Right? There was perfect peace and harmony. But as you know, in Genesis chapter 3, it's not long before the tragedy of sin enters the picture through that of a serpent. Right? Adam stands aside. He's passive. He fails to step up and engage. And in doing so, Eve is deceived by the serpent. It's the tragedy of sin entering the world. Everything is They realize they're naked. They're ashamed of it. God does not let them stay in the garden, right? Wickedness upon wickedness upon wickedness upon wickedness. It does not take long for man to spiral out of control. In fact, it's just a few chapters before God decides to completely hit the reset button by flooding the world and starting over. And yet when you follow that through, you realize that Noah and his family, as they got on the boat and they were to be the family that would keep humanity going, chosen by God, it did not mean that sin did not get on the boat with them. Because as the flood subsided, as they got off the boat, it's not long before we see Noah fall flat in his face. And yet in Genesis 3, and specifically Genesis 3, verse 15, we see an amazing promise of Scripture that points us towards Christ. Jesus is saying this, or God's saying this, he says this to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even in Genesis 3, all the way back to the beginning, we have this idea that a, a, a seed of the woman would one day come that would rise up and that would, would crush the head of the serpent. But that's not all it is that the serpent would also, in this process, wound that man that had risen up. We see Jesus Christ all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We move on and God makes a covenant with Abraham. God says that I will make you a great nation. You'll be the father of many nations. That through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all the nations of the world. As we continue to keep moving, Abraham's great-grandson Judah in Genesis 49 is blessed. He receives a promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the world is going to follow this king and he is going to be, bring peace and harmony. 
And so the first king in that line is none other than King David. King David is a man after God's own heart. Maybe he is the one that will rise up to crush the head of the serpent. But we find out pretty quickly that David is infected with the same sin that the rest of mankind is. That he commits adultery with Bathsheba, that he has Uriah killed, that there's blood on his hands, and he fails to be that savior. We go from there and line after line, generation after generation after generation after generation of king, one by one, they take power and one by one, they all fall. They go after money, they go after sex, they go after power. They follow other gods and they run Israel straight into the ground. We finally get to the point where there's no more kings. And it seems though the plan is lost. But then the prophets come on the scene and they continue to keep telling that this king would one day come. That he would defeat evil and that he would restore the garden. They continued this promise that one day that Messiah is going to rise up. And the prophets come and go and we get to the point where the Old Testament ends and that intertestamental period of 400 years where everything seems dark and there's nothing happening. Had God left his people to their fate? It would be a much different story for us today if he had. The second thing that I would like you to notice from our text this morning is that Jesus Christ is both the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an amazing picture, and it's amazing contrast that Jesus Christ is called both. And he perfectly fulfills both descriptions of him, that he is a lamb, a spotless, innocent lamb. But at the same time, he is a lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. We're introduced to Jesus Christ as a lamb early in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord, and he says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him. If I could go back to a moment in history, this may be one of those moments that I go back to. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an amazing thing that he recognized Jesus. He recognized that he was the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sin of the world. Right? Other allusions to or other uh, evidence of Jesus as a Lamb was uh, read by Pastor this morning in our, our scripture reading. In verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he says, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in flesh, went to his death as a lamb, a silent, spotless lamb which is even more overwhelming to understand when you contrast that idea with the fact that Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Christ was not just any lamb. He was the spotless lamb. And in our text this morning, as it says that they were about to go up to Jerusalem, they were to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. as the, the yearly festival that they would go up, that they would celebrate 
that they enjoyed doing. But what the disciples need to understand in this is that they're not just going up to celebrate Passover. They're not just going up to celebrate the shedding of the blood of the lamb, that they are literally walking with the Passover lamb. That Jesus Christ was going to go up to Jerusalem and he was going to lay down his life, the perfect, spotless, innocent human being, and he was going to lay down his life for the sins of many. One of the practices of, uh, in Leviticus, one of the practices of um, selecting a lamb for Passover was that it had to be carefully and closely inspected. Right, that there was to be no blemish, there were to be no broken bones, there was to be nothing really wrong with this lamb. It was to be an innocent lamb. And I find it fascinating that as Jesus Christ went up to Jerusalem, he entered the synagogue, and again and again and again he was questioned, he was inspected, and he was found spotless. Even as he is arrested, even before he is, when he is before Pilate, Pilate says, I cannot find any fault in this man. He was perfect. He was the only one in history that could be the Passover lamb. But Jesus is not just a lamb. He is also a lion. I think that in maybe our circles today, we, we often will, will think about Jesus as a lamb, right? Gentle, meek, lowly, humble. And Jesus is those things, and it's a beautiful thing. But what we also need to realize is that Jesus was a lion that he was bold, that he was a man of conviction, that he had fortitude, he had a strength of soul about him. And as you read all through the Gospels, you can see that again and again and again and again. In Mark 32, verse, uh, sorry, Mark 10, 32 to 34, which is, is our text this morning, notice what it says in verse 32. And it's, it's slight at the beginning. It's almost, it's easy to miss it, but it's so, so important. It says, they were now on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. He was out in front of them. Mark makes, specific, makes a specific point to mention that. He wasn't just passively going along with the group, and it's like, well, okay, I think we'll, yeah, okay, we'll go here, and then we'll go here, and, you know, I need to fulfill the things that God has asked me to do, but, you know what, we'll just kind of go with the flow, and we'll do it. no. Jesus was out before them saying, hey, all of you need to follow me because this is what we're going to do, right? He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. In our text, he also refers to himself as the son of man, the son of man. This was Jesus's favorite and most used name for himself. He constantly referred to himself as the son of man. And the son of man is a reference from Daniel chapter seven, one of the amazing visions, the dream that Daniel has. Right? And it shows these creatures that are to come. Right? And the Pharisees of this time, the religious leaders of this time, would have understood that as Jesus referenced himself as the Son of Man, that he was not claiming to just merely be a man. He was not claiming merely to just be a good teacher. He was claiming to be the Son of the Most High God. This was blasphemous in their eyes. And I want you to think for a moment what it must have been like to walk into the synagogue, to walk into those temples and to say, hey, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. You talk about boldness. You talk about courage. You talk about fortitude. How about when Jesus walks into the synagogue, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and in the scroll of Isaiah it says this. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He said, you know this scroll that you guys are used to reading again and again and again and again? The talks about God? Yeah, no, it's actually about me. It's about me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and nothing is going to be different. Or, sorry, everything is going to be different after I am done doing what I am called to do here on earth. How about in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53? Right, we see Jesus in the garden. He's being arrested, right? I think we, do we have Genesis, or uh, Matthew? We do, yeah. So he's being arrested, he's in the garden, right? We think it's Peter, it doesn't mention it specifically, we think it's probably Peter, pulls the sword out and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers that had come to get him. And Jesus responds by saying this, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? This idea that Jesus was a leader. Jesus was not afraid to be bold. Jesus was not afraid to take charge And yet what C.S. Lewis so adequately pointed out in his series in the Chronicles of Narnia was that although he was a lion, he was a lion that understood that he needed to lay himself down. That he could have ripped the head right off of all of those soldiers. But he didn't because that was not a part of God's plan. We can keep going. In Mark 11, 15 to 18, it's Jesus walking into the temple and flipping tables. He's quite literally throwing furniture around the temple, saying, this is my father's house and you have made it a den of robbers. And this is my response to that. Or how about in John chapter 10, verse 18? Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. But I also, I have the power to lay it down and I also have the power to take it up again. No man had ever been able to say that. And Jesus said it boldly. My friend, Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was the suffering servant. He was meek and gentle and lowly of heart, but he was also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He was the most courageous man to ever walk the earth. And when he was delivered over the chief priests, he was going to be condemned. He was going to be delivered up to the Gentiles. He was going to be mocked, spit upon, flogged, and crucified. He knows that all of this is to come. So studying this week, this blew my mind that Jesus has an understanding of what is going to happen to him. In John 17, and other Gospels certainly take account for it as well, Jesus is in the garden. He knows what is to come. He knows all of the details. He knows the pain that's going to come. He knows the rejection that's going to come from his father. And he lays himself down and says, Father, please let this cup pass from me. Let it pass from me. I do not want to do this. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In Luke chapter 22, Luke the doctor gives us a little detail that I think that speaks to the intensity of what was going to come. Right? That Jesus knew what was going to come. He asks his father to take the cup from him. And in Luke 22 verse 4, the text specifically says that as he was kneeling down, as he was praying, that he actually sweat blood. 
That was the intensity of the moment that Jesus was dealing with. I was talking to pastor this week and said some scholars actually will consider the fact that Jesus had a panic attack in the garden. That he was fully aware of what was going to come and the flesh, the part of his flesh that, that realized this almost got to a point where it could not handle this and he starts sweating blood. And now with all that understanding in our mind, in our text in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has his disciples behind him and he says, follow me, we are going to go up to Jerusalem. This is our Savior. This is the man we follow. This is the man we come before when we look at the table, the man who shed his blood for us and whose body was broken for us. He knows what's to come and he still comes right at Jerusalem. And so, whether you are a Christian and you have been a Christian for a long time or whether this is your first time in a church and the first time that you've ever heard the name of Jesus, the same question must apply for all of you. And it's the same question that I struggled with all week. I know the Sunday school answer to this question. I know how to say it. I know the, the Christianese. I know how to use the language. But the question that has to come to all of us is, why would he do that? Why, with full understanding of what was to come, why would he continue up to Jerusalem? Why would he do that for us? Certainly it was to fulfill the mission of his father. That's what he came for. He knew he came to die. But why would he go and die for the sins of people that are just abominably sinful. He went and died, not for a, a, a man and a woman, a group of people, a, a, a church that was spotless and impressive and perfect. He came to die for a guy that can't get out of bed in the morning without sinning. He came to die for men and women that can't go three or four or five steps without tripping and falling on their face. He came to die for the person that was an atheist for most of his life before he came and realized the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. He came to die for people that reject him their entire life. He came to die for a kid from Cleveland that liked ketchup sandwiches. He came to die for people that like to whistle. We can laugh about that. We can joke about that. We can let that slide by. We can understand the Sunday school answer to that question. But every day we wake up and every week we walk through this life, we should seriously ask ourselves the question, why did he go up to Jerusalem? Why did he do it? And when we get past the Sunday school answer part of it, when we get past the words that we're known to speak, when we get past the thoughts that we know we're supposed to have, and we actually start to drill down into who we are as human beings. Yes, if you're a Christian, you've been saved by Christ, but you can still see the sinful world that you live in. You can still see the person that you are. And Jesus died for you. This is the heart of what we celebrate this morning. This is the heart of the table, is that Jesus Christ came 
and his motivation to go up to Jerusalem to suffer all that he was going to suffer was to redeem a people that were lost and that there was nothing good about them. Think about that for a moment. If you're here this morning and you've never heard about Jesus, you've never heard the name of Jesus. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've heard the name of Jesus a lot. But you need to ask yourself that question, why would he do this? And then you cannot leave it at that. That that question demands a response. And for the Christian, it demands a response to, I am now living in light of what Christ has done for me. And so that is going to bleed into and infect every area of my life. It's going to infect how I treat my kids. It's going to affect how I treat my wife. It's going to affect how I go to the grocery store. It's going to affect how I pump gas. It's going to affect how I am in my place of work. That there was a man 2,000 years ago who was God incarnate in the flesh that did not deserve to die, and yet he took me, this sinful human being, and he said, you you are worth me spilling out my blood on the cross. It's an amazing thing. And so if you've never understood Christ, if you've never heard the name of Christ this morning, he came for you and he died for you. He shed his blood for you. His body was broken for you. And it doesn't end there. He invites you. He pursues you. And he wants you to come into a relationship with him. And it was foretold in the Old Testament that once that takes place, once you repent of your sin, once you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, once you believe in him, that he will take your heart of stone and pluck it out and he will give you a heart of flesh. And he doesn't just leave you there, that he will then begin to do a work in you that will make you more and more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. I would invite you into this relationship. Please, please, I beg you, do not leave here just considering that. Do not leave here hearing that and then letting it go. Come and talk to somebody. We can show you from Scripture how it is that Jesus Christ came, he died, and he died specifically for you. It's overwhelming when we consider it. And so, we come to the table this morning. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, the men can come up to the front. And we're going to gather together before the table, and we're going to celebrate the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who took the sins away from the whole world. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Look to the table, look to his blood, look to his body that was broken. It should forever change us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this ordinance that we can look back and we can celebrate the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, but specifically we can look to his work on the cross. Lord, the Bible says that the life was in the blood and that his blood was shed for the remission of sins. 
And that if we repent of our sin and we accept that, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, as it says in John 3.16, we can look forward to a life of eternity before the presence and in the presence of God. May we reason with that this morning. May we not leave here taking that and then throwing it away. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. We gather together this morning to remember with gratitude the death of Jesus and to celebrate the life he has given us and to participate united with our church family in the unity of the body of Christ in anticipation of the day when Jesus will come again. And so we invite all those who have been saved by grace through faith alone and since the time of their conversion have been baptized by immersion to join in celebrating the Lord's Supper with us. I'll ask the men to hand out the elements this morning. First Corinthians eleven twenty four says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Brother Travis, can you please pray for the bread? Remember the sacrifice that you made for us. Help us to remember that as the lamb that was slain, you had the strength of the lion. That you laid your life down willingly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, eat and remember. 1 Corinthians 11.25 says, After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this, you, as often as you drink it. Drink in remembrance of me. Brother Greg, can you pray for the cup? Heavenly Father, as we partake in communion, we pray that you humble our hearts. We think of the fact that we were once enemies, that we were rebels, Mm -hmm. and we continually chose our own desires, God. But because of your son's sacrifice and the shedding of his blood, we are no longer rebels, but we're reconciled back to you, God. We're no longer enemies, but we're children. We're sons and daughters of you, God. And as we take this cup, we pray that you allow this truth to permeate our hearts, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. Matthew 26, 27, Jesus said, Drink you all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink and remember. It is customary in our church to follow the practice of the disciples that after they ate, they went out into the garden and they sang a hymn. And so I'd invite you to stand and we will sing a hymn together to conclude our service. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard, or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.